Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is engineering and, oh, ladies and gentlemen, he's also producing. It's incredible. Uh, anyway, today we're going to share a couple of conversations I had earlier. First with Amy Swearer. Well, actually, that's not a conversation I've already had. It's one I'm about to have. Anyway, she's a legal policy analyst with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk Talk about 3D guns, 3D printed guns, and whether or not they are the threat that uh, we're hearing, and where does this stand with the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment? So we'll get into that with Amy Swear, but we will share a conversation I had with Ginger Hubbard uh, earlier. I can't believe you just said that. Biblical wisdom for taming your child's tongue. Uh, we're also going to talk with Lauren Green McAfee, Only One Life, How a Woman's Everyday Shapes an Eternal Legacy. So that's coming up in this um, in today's program. Uh, also, we're going to give away, in fact, now, we're going to do it now. Now, James, you got that? Now, we're going to give away our uh, family four-pack of day passes to the Oregon State Fair. And just for your information, Wednesday the 29th uh, is Faith and Family Night at the Oregon State Fair. Day passes include general admission seating at the Skillet concert that night. So uh, this is a great opportunity for some family fun. So that's uh, that's our family four-pack of day passes to the Oregon State Fair. We want to give them away to caller number 3, 503-786-9390. 503-786-9390. Again, we're giving away a family four-pack of day passes to the Oregon State Fair. The 29th is Faith and Family Night at the Oregon State Fair, and those passes include not only general admission seating at the Skillet concert that night, but, you know, everything else you need to get in and have a great time. 503-786-9390. Taking a look at some of the developing stories of the day, friends of a missing University of Iowa student say she had been planning to attend a wedding in the Dominican Republic this week as baffled investigators continue to look for clues. This is every parent's nightmare. Facebook announced on Tuesday that it had uncovered sophisticated attempts to influence U.S. politics ahead of the November midterms, elevating concerns about Russia and possible election tampering, although they haven't pinned it on any one or any entity in particular. The federal fraud trial of former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort began uh, yesterday. This prosecutor's focused on his lavish lifestyle. Today will be the first full day of testimony. And a federal judge has issued a temporary restraining order on the blueprints of untraceable and undetectable 3D printed plastic guns. Embattled CBS CEO Les Moonves uh, could address the sexual harassment allegations against him in a company earnings call on Thursday, according to Fox Business. While the Iowa college student who vanished two weeks ago had been planning to travel to the Dominican Republic this week for a wedding, according to uh, friends, Molly Tibbetts, 20, was supposed to accompany her boyfriend Dalton Jack to his brother Blake's wedding to his fiance Amy Houghton. Blake said, uh, uh, and he had jokingly suggested to his brother that he proposed to Tibbetts, his high school sweetheart, during that trip. Well, Tibbetts was last seen jogging on the evening of the 18th of July in Brooklyn, a small Iowa town where the University of Iowa student had been living this summer with the brothers. At a news conference on Tuesday, Kevin Winker, director of investigative operations for the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, said investigators haven't drawn any conclusions about what happened to Tibbetts other than that disappearing on her own is not consistent with her past. He said dozens of investigators from his uh, agency, the FBI, and local law enforcement are working on the case and that they uh, haven't ruled out any possibility and are checking out every lead they receive. Well, Facebook says it's uncovered sophisticated efforts, possibly linked to Russia, to influence American politics in advance of the U.S. midterm election. The company said in a blog post that it removed 32 accounts from the Facebook and Instagram platforms because they were involved in coordinated 
simulated political behavior and appeared to be fake. Facebook did not explicitly say that the effort was aimed at influencing the midterm election in November, but the timing of the suspicious activity would be consistent with such an attempt. The company, which said it is in the early stages of its investigation, held briefings in the House and Senate this week. Facebook said it doesn't know who is behind the efforts, but said there may be connections to Russia. The company said it has found some connections between the accounts it removed and accounts connected to Russia's Internet Research Agency that it removed before and after the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort's lavish lifestyle was front and center during opening arguments in his trial, his fraud trial, as prosecutors said he lied to put his money ahead of the law, while defense attorneys and even the presiding judge reminded jurors that uh, exorbitant wealth in itself is not a crime. Prosecutors also called their first witness in the case, former Bernie Sanders campaign advisor Tad Devine, who worked closely with Manafort on several elections in Ukraine, including the successful 2010 presidential campaign of since-deposed pro-Russian leader Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, Devine, under cross-examination by Manafort attorney Richard Wesley, confirmed that Manafort's former business partner, Rick Gates, handled most of Manafort's day-to-day business operations. The admission was significant because defense attorney Thomas Zenke uh, said in his opening statement that Manafort relied on others to keep track of the millions of dollars he was earning from his Ukrainian political work and had misplaced his trust in Gates, who cut a deal with prosecutors and is expected to testify in that trial. Well, a federal judge in Seattle issued a restraining order on Tuesday afternoon, temporarily stopping the release of blueprints to make untraceable and undetectable 3D printed plastic guns. U.S. District Court Judge Robert uh, Lasnik issued the order a day after eight states sued the government to block a settlement reached by the administration last month, allowing the Texas-based company Defense Distributed to resume online sharing of blueprints for the 3D firearms. The company was set to allow downloads on Wednesday, although blueprints have been posted since Friday. A temporary restraining order blocks the release until the next scheduled hearing in the uh, rather on the 10th of August. And Moonves uh, not hi- isn't hiding from his scandal, we're being told. CBS's Honcho Les Moonves is planning to speak on the company's uh, earnings call on Thursday. The latest indication that the embattled CEO plans to maintain a public profile with an internal investigation into sexual misconduct allegations. The Fox Business Network's Charles Gasparino has learned. The news, after first being reported, uh, spiked shares of CBS as much as 2.28 percent in uh, early afternoon trading on Tuesday. Shares of CBS ended the day at $52.67, up 2.71 percent in New York Stock Exchange composite trading. The company still may decide at the last minute to pull Munvez, handing over the uh, duties to their other two executives who deal with analysts' questions during earnings calls. Chief Operating Officer Joseph uh, Iliano and David Townsend, Investor Relations Chief, a CBS insider said, but the plan as of now is to allow Moonves to appear on the call and take analysts' questions. And on this day in 1981, MTV made its debut. Remember, it was a different kind of program then. And on this day in 1936, the Olympics opened in Berlin with a ceremony presided over by Adolf Hitler. And on this day in 1907, the U.S. Army Signal Corps establishes an aeronautical division, the forerunner of the U.S. Air Force. Well, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's prosecutors were lectured by the federal judge on Wednesday for the language they've used in the courtroom as the trial of the former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort entered a second day. U.S. District Judge T.S. Ellis III specifically told prosecutors to stop using the word oligarch to describe wealthy Ukrainians whose dealings with Manafort are at the heart of the fraud case and the charges he faces in Northern Virginia a federal court. The judge said the term has a pejorative meaning and is not relevant to this case.
case. Further, he cautioned that using it could suggest Manafort is associated with bad people and guilty by association. It's not the American way, the judge said. He noted that wealthy donors like George Soros and the Koch brothers also could be considered oligarchs. Hmm. Well, while it's a part of their effort to paint Manafort as a tax scofflaw who spent big on luxury items, Ellis uh, would not allow the photos um, to be used of his clothing, suits, um, closets, and so on to be presented to the jury, saying enough is enough. We don't convict people because they have a lot of money and throw it around. Well, Ellis uh, has scolded members of the uh, Mueller team before, asserting back in May that the team was really interested in targeting President Trump. But the case is proceeding, rather, in the first trial arising from the Mueller probe. The Manafort charges do not relate to allegations of Russian meddling or collusion with Trump figures in the 2016 campaign, but rather focus on allegations that Manafort cheated on his taxes and engaged in other fraudulent activities that predate the presidential campaign and his role in it. Meanwhile, President Trump uh, called Wednesday for Attorney General Jeff Sessions to end special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation right now, alleging bias on the investigative team and complaining about the trial of his former campaign chairman. This is a terrible situation, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now. Of course, Sessions has recused himself. I don't think he actually has the authority to do so, but the president went on to say before it continues to stain our country any further. He tweeted, Bob Mueller is totally conflicted, and his 17 angry Democrats that are doing his dirty work are a disgrace to USA. This is a terrible situation, and Attorney General Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt. Well, the treat uh, renewed Democratic complaints that the president is wrongly challenging the independence of the special counsel. The president has repeatedly blasted the probe as a witch hunt, but the call for Session to intervene represents another escalation. Sessions already recused himself, as I mentioned. That was last year, handing over oversight to the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, so he is unlikely to act. A Justice Department spokesman had no comment on the tweet when reached uh, by news sources. Another source familiar with the investigation downplayed the implications of the tweet as the president previously was venting his frustration with both Russia probe and Sessions' recusal from it. Well, Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, said in a statement, we've been saying for months that this is a time to bring this inquiry to an end. The president has expressed the same opinion. This is just another iteration of that same opinion. So we'll continue to follow the president's many tweets um, and see if, in fact, uh, it has any impact. By the way, we just learned a short time ago that Mr. Mueller has responded to the Trump attorney's request for per, uh, parameters of a potential interview. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll tell you more about what the uh, uh, the great oracle of the special counsel uh, has had to say. So we'll get into that momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up. Uh, well, actually, we're going to get right into Amy, aren't we? So we'll tell you about this later. But Amy Swearer, uh, legal policy analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the 3D guns and the Bill of Rights. What does one have to do with the other? Uh, that's coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in an era when people can use 3D metal printers to make guns, does the First Amendment protect a book de- detailing gun manufacturing process, but not a computer file that does the same thing? The question has become particularly urgent. The computer programs that tell 3D printers how to produce these guns were scheduled to be legally downloadable on Wednesday. Well, today. However, on Tuesday, U.S. District Judge Robert Lasnik in Seattle issued a temporary restraining order blocking the downloads until a hearing the 10th of August. Well, Lasnik's order came in response to a lawsuit filed by Democratic attorneys general in eight states seeking an emergency injunction to stop the legal downloads. They argued the downloads would create a great detriment to the public and public safety. 
Well, even President Trump weighed in, saying that he didn't uh, seem to think that it made sense. Well, the courts have previously weighed in on similar First Amendment questions. In 2010, the Supreme Court found that the First Amendment protects violent video games in the same way that newspapers and books are protected. A 2001 decision by the U.S. Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, rather, for the Second Circuit said uh, communication does not lose constitutional protection as speech simply because it is expressed in a language of computer code. Well, what does the um, printing of uh, 3D guns have to do with the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment? Well, here to talk with us about that is um, uh, my guest, Amy Swearer. She's a legal policy analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, First of all, let me ask you to comment on how unique um, having access to this information is in terms of uh, creating guns that are untraceable uh, and can be uh, taken in and out of secure areas without being detected? Well, so there's two things to keep in mind here. I think the the first, and and people often lose sight of this, is that this information has long been readily available online. In fact, just uh, an hour or so after the judge in Seattle issued the injunction, which was actually uh, against the federal government and not against defense distribution itself, uh, an hour or so after that occurred, a a number of groups in in the California area uh, actually went ahead and published the exact same blueprint uh, with the exact same uh, code integrated into it for people to download. Uh, Regardless, this has been online um, at least since 2013 when defense distribution initially uh, published them online. A few days later, the Obama administration, uh, you know, said, look, you can't do this. And hence this whole lawsuit started. Uh, But out of that, there were, you know, download. And once it's downloaded, those individuals can then continue to download it. So this information has not gone away. And in fact, if you just spend a few minutes online, you can find dozens of different uh, groups and organizations and individuals who have done similar things. Uh, This is not some unique situation in which, uh, you know, the the floodgates are suddenly opened uh, to technology and to information that was not already available. I think I misspoke earlier, but uh, I think I said the Fourth Amendment rather than the Second. But um, you write in your piece that appeared on Fox News's uh, page that um, uh, gun control advocates uh, are are arguing that uh, this is protected by both the the first, uh, rather not uh, gun control advocates, but those who advocate for the, um, the right to bear arms, that this is protected by both the First and the Second Amendments to the Constitution. Can you help us understand what the Constitution might have to say about whether or not this information uh, can, in fact, be restricted, even though at this point it really is widely available? Sure. So the thing to keep in mind is this was never actually a Second Amendment case. When it started uh, and, and throughout the entirety of this litigation, there had never been a question of whether or not it is lawful for individuals who are not you know, otherwise prohibited uh, by state or federal law from possessing firearms. It is lawful for them to create, customize, build their own firearms, whether with a 3D printer, whether, you know, with old gunsmithing technique, whether with you know, uh, other means, you can buy kits online for this. It has always been lawful for individuals to do that. And it's been lawful since the founding of this country. People have, have long engaged in personal gunsmithing. Uh, so this was never nobody, not the government, not the court, not the plaintiffs, nobody questioned whether or not that was a lawful activity under the Second Amendment. What has been questioned is whether or not the government can stop individuals, in this case defense distribution, from publishing information. 
information on how to engage in that activity of creating uh, guns with a 3D printer. And so this was not about the creation of the gun itself, but about being able to stop the information from being published on how to create the gun. And so that turns this into entirely a First Amendment issue. Uh, the First Amendment protects not just speech in terms of words. At its core, it also guarantees that the government can't punish or prohibit the free dissemination of information and expressions of ideas or modes of communication. And so that really then becomes the center point of the issue is the dissemination of that information on how to uh, to conduct certain Second Amendment. Now, there has been, as you point out in your uh, your column, a hyperbolic response uh, from gun control advocates. Uh, and uh, that's resonated with a lot of people because we're given the impression that this particular information can produce a line of weaponry uh, that is likely to be exploited by those who want to use it unlawfully and it cannot be detected. Terrorists can carry these weapons in environments where uh, they would otherwise be detected. Is that related to this this subject and is it an overblown in terms of the concerns that are being expressed or is that a, a genuine uh, concern? Well, it's it definitely a concern in the sense that anytime there is an improvement in technology, it can be used by criminals uh, to better conduct criminal activity. So in, in that sense, it is plausible that somebody could use these blueprints to create a gun out of plastic. Now, that being said, at, at the moment, these, these blueprints aren't for entirely plastic guns. So since 1988, the federal government has prohibited uh, the manufacturing and possession of what are called undetectable guns. So any gun that is made legally, uh, including the, the guns made via the blueprints from these plants, has to contain a certain amount of metal such that it can be detected if someone were to walk through you know, one of your standard metal detectors. So right off the bat, uh, this, this assertion that these plans are for undetectable guns is flat out wrong. Uh, these guns that can be made with these blueprints uh, are not undetectable. Now, can someone uh, take these plans and plausibly you know, use them to, to create a plastic firearm? Sure, but they wouldn't even need the plan to do that. They could do that right now by simply uh, taking apart a uh, piece of the gun. There's uh, technology available in which even just taking those photographs and, and putting them into you know, these certain algorithms, out pops, you, you know, instead of a, a metal portion of it, uh, out pops a plastic portion of it. There are ways of doing that that aren't in any way, shape, or form related to the blueprint. Uh, so it, it's a concern that exists apart from the question of these blueprints. Up. Now, to, to kind of stymie any fears that people have, and it's simply not true that at the moment there, there are really plausible ways of creating these, quote, undetectable firearms. And even if uh, they, they could create firearms that withstand uh, plastic firearms, that is, that withstand the trauma that comes with firing them repeatedly, the, metal, the, the bullets themselves would have to be metal and contain gunpowder, the bullets being a very important component of being able to fire uh, a gun. And on top of that, we already have instances of, of inoperable plastic uh, looking, plastic gun looking type thing already being caught by scanners in airports uh, because they look like gun. And so the, these aren't undetectable in any sense of, you know, the, the word where they're invisible and no one can ever find them. <laughs> That's simply not the case. No one has an invisible you know, ma uh, massless gun uh, that, that can never be found by anybody else. It's not the case. So what will be the question brought up on August the 10th when the uh, next hearing on this uh, arises? So interestingly enough, and this is kind of inside legal baseball here, the, the temporary restraining order, as I mentioned, was again the government. So going all the way back to 2013, this all started with uh, defense distribution, attempting to publish these online. And the Obama administration essentially said, look, we think your publication of this violence 
violates certain export laws that we have about providing data on certain weapons to foreign nationals uh, because it's available for international downloads. So they've been fighting back and forth with the government for a few years. Um, and finally, uh, a few months ago, they reached a settlement. So the settlement essentially said, like, we're going to defense distribution is going to drop the lawsuit. The government is going to, you know, agree that their interpretation of their export regulations are erroneous. Uh, and so therefore, the publications can be downloaded. So this lawsuit uh, right now is actually joining the government from abiding by its agreement. Uh, so it's basically saying, government, you have to continue to enforce your previous prohibition on pu publishing these materials. And so it's not actually on the individual, it's on the government. Now, that all being said, what's actually going to happen then in this future uh, uh, tri uh, trial order uh, hearing that, that's going to take place on the 10th is they're going to dig deeper into the merits of whether or not that the, the various states have a valid argument as to whether the government has to abide uh, by its previous position or whether it can abide by a new position. And so it's all kind of this inside baseball uh, thing that, that's happening here. And I think part of that is these states don't want to actually go after the speech issue. They want to do everything in their capacity to avoid that issue because it's a losing issue. Mm -hmm. To say, look, in indivi this individual can't publish already readily available information on how to conduct a lawful activity. This person can't publish it because we, for all intents and purposes, wish the Second Amendment didn't exist. Um, so they're, they're doing all these certain legal maneuvers um, and, and going after sort of the administrative end of it instead of attacking that issue head on. Well, we'll certainly watch with interest. Amy Swearer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Up next, we'll hear from Ginger Hubbard. I can't believe you just said that. Biblical wisdom for taming our child, your child's tongue. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend, still engineering and producing today's uh, program with inexhaustible energy. Okay, inexhaustible. Special counsel Robert Mueller has finally responded to a letter from President Trump's outside attorneys about what the scope and format of a potential interview with the president would take. Sources familiar with the investigation are saying the sources say that uh, Mueller has agreed to reduce the number of questions for the president from an initial list of 49 and is willing to have some questions answered in writing, though he wants other questions answered orally. Now, there's less and less likelihood that the president will um, address the special counsel, but nonetheless, the sources add that Mueller has not agreed to the president's demands to limit his questioning to matters related to allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. The special prosecutor still wants to ask the president about obstruction of justice and other topics. They also say that uh, talks with the special counsel about a possible interview continue, but as one source said, there is still a long, long Long way to go. And while the Trump team, uh, the Trump legal team's current posture is still not to have the president sit for an interview with Mueller, source familiar with the investigation says never say never. So that's the latest on the back and forth with regard to um, sitting down with the um, special counsel in this probe. Well, for a look at how um, special counsel Robert Mueller uh, could tie Russian election interference to American citizens, you might look for a word that's not collusion, but rather conspiracy, not coordination, but conspiracy. One charge in particular, conspiracy is uh, to defraud the United States has cropped up in several of Mueller's team's major cases. The allegation shows up in filings against former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, as well as in indictments of Russian nationals accused earlier this month of hacking into Democratic Party organizations and election infrastructure. Conspiracy charges are significant because they're building blocks. Once prosecutors allege a conspiracy, they can add more individuals later. Donald Trump and his, uh, his circle have long focused on a different buzzword, saying that 
that there was no collusion with Russia. And subsequently that if there was collusion, Trump wasn't aware of it. Now comes Trump's attorney, whom spokesman Rudy Giuliani. I don't even know that uh, uh, if that's a crime colluding about Russians, he told CNN this week. Well, Trump echoed that in a tweet. Collusion is not a crime. Well, that is uh, at once technically correct. And according to former federal prosecutor Mimi Roja, beside the point to say there is no crime of collusion means nothing, she says. That label isn't in the criminal statutes, but that doesn't matter because the conduct that underlies collusion can be, under certain circumstances, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. So we're seeing the ground shift just a bit. Okay, there's no evidence of collusion. Maybe there's conspiracy. We'll go with that. Well, the statute, Title 18 U.S. Code 371, makes it a crime for two or more people to conspire either to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States or any agency thereof in any manner or for any purpose. The maximum penalty is five years. It's among a list of similar charges that Mueller's prosecutors have brought in their investigation, including conspiracy to launder money and conspiracy to obstruct justice, which can lead to longer sentences. Now, Mueller's uh, mandate is uh, worth noting, doesn't mention either collusion or conspiracy. Deputy U.S. Attorney General uh, empowered him to investigate any links and or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of President Donald Trump and matters arising from that. So it's pretty broad and vague, which is typical for special counsel. Well, the statute has been a basic part of prosecutors' toolkit for decades. Daniel Richmond, a former federal prosecutor who now teaches at Columbia Law School, points out it captures conspiracies to violate all sorts of federal laws and allows the government to go after any property or information it is entitled to. In the original case against Manafort last October, Mueller accused the former campaign chairman and his longtime deputy, Rick Gates, of conspiring to defraud the U.S. by failing to register as agents of a foreign government, which impeded the Justice Department and Treasury Department's ability to oversee the activity of foreign agents. Gates pled guilty and is cooperating. Manafort went on trial and is on trial in Virginia on separate bank fraud and tax charges also brought by Mueller. Although the investigator used a similar formulation against Russian nationals and companies that he alleged masqueraded as Americans on social media to sow discord among voters. The February charges included conspiracy to defraud the United States by impairing, obstructing, and defeating the law, uh, lawful functioning of the government. The Russian interfered, Russians rather, interfered with Federal Election Commission, Justice Department, and State Department operations, the filing alleged, alleges, rather. The prosecutors in Washington, D.C., working with the Justice Department's National Security Division, also used the charge in their case against uh, Marie Butina, a Russian gun rights activist who, they say, established close ties with the National Rifle Association to advance a Kremlin agenda in the U.S. The charge they use, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. by acting as a foreign agent without registering with the Justice Department. Well, with conspiracy allegations now leveled at more than two dozen Russian nationals relating to the 2016 election, the U.S. could add Americans if there's evidence that they helped or encouraged them. If there's any corruption in the electoral system and the way it's supposed to work, that uh, conduct can be put into this conspiracy. Campaign finance violations can be put in this framework, as well as conspiracy to obstruct the function of the Federal Elections Commission. Um, This framework has been used, could be used, and uh, something to look for moving forward in all of this. Well, the U.S. appeals court ruled on Wednesday it is unconstitutional for the Trump administration to threaten to withhold funding from sanctuary cities that aren't cooperating with immigration officials. Absent congressional authorization, the administration may not redistribute or withhold property appropriated funds uh, in order to effectuate its own policy goals. That's a quote from Chief Judge Sidney Thomas in the majority opinion. In a two-to-one ruling, uh, Thomas also said that he's sending back the case back to the lower court because there wasn't enough
enough evidence to support a nationwide ban on Trump's executive order. The case will receive more hearings on the nationwide ban question. Well, in November, the U.S. District Judge Jim, rather, William Oreck, he issued an injunction to permanently block the president's executive order to cut off funding to sanctuary cities. The judge said the president didn't have the authority to attach new conditions of, uh, to spending approved by Congress, adding that the president's efforts also violated the separation of powers doctrine. A ruling came in lawsuits filed by two California counties, San Francisco and Santa Clara. A, um, a federal judge also ruled last Friday that the U.S. Justice Department cannot withhold grants from Chicago because it was providing sanctuary to immigrants. The president promised to crack down on sanctuary cities, claiming they were harboring illegal immigrants. The administration said the executive order signed in January only applies to a small monetary fund that already requires compliance with immigration law. We'll see what happens then, given this most recent ruling. Well, the tariff battle between the U.S. and China could be about to heat up again. Trump administration plans to propose slapping a 25 percent tariff on $200 billion of imported Chinese goods. This comes after initially setting them at 10 percent in a bid to pressure Beijing into making trade concessions. Uh, President Trump's administration said in July, the 10th to be precise, it could seek uh, to impose the 10 percent tariffs on thousands of Chinese imports. And while the tariffs would not be imposed until after a period of public comment, raising the proposed level to 25 percent could escalate the trade dispute between the world's two biggest economies. The source said the Trump administration could announce the tougher proposals uh, uh, and implement them soon. There was no immediate reaction from the Chinese government, although they have uh, since said that they are not subject to blackmail. In July, it accused the United States of bullying and warned it would not, uh, it would rather hit back. Concerns have been uh, that a trade war between Washington and Beijing could hit a, a global growth. Stock markets edged up globally on Tuesday on a report that the United States and China were seeking to resume talks to defuse the situation. And a spokesman for the U.S. Trade Representative's Office declined to comment to, to Reuters on the proposed tariffs rate increase or on whether changing them would alter the deadlines laid out for comment period before implementation. In early July, the U.S. government imposed 25 percent tariffs on its initial $34 billion, billion in uh, Chinese imports. Beijing at that time retaliated with matching tariffs on the same amount U.S. exports in China. And North Korea last week returned 55 boxes said to contain the remains of U.S. service members who fought in the Korean War. But only a single dog tag was included in that delivery with no other information to help identify each individual. The U.S. Uh, defense uh, official has confirmed. The official speaking on condition of anonymity said it would probably take months, if not years, for U.S. forensics experts to fully determine individual identities from the remains, which have not yet been confirmed by U.S. specialists to be those of American service members. We don't know who's in those boxes, Jim Mattis said, Defense Secretary of uh, the U.S. Well, he noted that some could turn out to be remains of missing service members from other nations that fought in the Korean War in the early 50s. They could go to Australia, Mattis said. Uh, they have some missing. France has missing. Americans have. There's a whole lot of us, so this is an international effort to bring closure to those families. During the Korean War, combat troops of 16 other United Nations member nations fought alongside U.S. service members on behalf of South Korea. Some of them, including Australia, Belgium, France, and the Philippines, have yet to recover some of their war dead from North Korea. The anonymous defense official also did not uh, know details about the signal dog tag, the single dog tag, including the name on it or whether it was even that of an American military member. 55 boxes were handed over uh, at Wosan, North Korea last Friday, flown aboard a U.S. military transport plane um, to Osan Airport Base in South Korea, where U.S. officials catalog the contents. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final 
final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Pat Tillman, the former All-American linebacker who left a career in the NFL to join the U.S. Army, will be inducted into the Arizona Sports Hall of Fame. Tillman, who was killed at the age of 27 by friendly fire while serving as an Army Ranger in Afghanistan in 2004, is among the new six members of the Arizona Sports Hall of Fame's 2018 induction class. Tillman was an All-American linebacker during his time at Arizona State University, was drafted in the seventh round by the Arizona Cardinals in 1998. He quickly became a starting safety, broke the franchise record with 224 tackles in the year 2000. Well, after the September 11th attacks in 2001, Tillman declined to a contract offer from the Cardinals and instead enlisted in the U.S. Army in 2012. He was killed April 22, 2004. The Arizona State Sun Devils celebrated Tillman's induction into the state's Hall of Fame with a photo on Twitter of his playing days. He was a strapping young man then and at the time of his death. A hero, a legend, a Sun Devil Hall of Famer, and now an Arizona Sports Hall of Famer, the team wrote. Well, the other inductees announced on Wednesday include former Arizona Diamondbacks first baseman Mark Grace, formerly uh, Brophy College prep swimmer Gary Hall, uh, Jr., longtime Arizona Wildcats softball head coach Mike Andrea, Xavier College preparatory director and golf coach Sister Lynn Windsor, and former uh, Chaparral softball coach Jeff Osarin. I mentioned it yesterday, but I think it bears repeating today because the day is approaching. Uh, But Franklin Graham uh, is holding one-day evangelistic prayer events all across the states of Oregon and Washington to proclaim the gospel and pray for our nation, our communities, and the lost as part of a nationwide Decision America tour. All events are free, and it begins in Oregon, well, today, in Medford, 7.30 p.m. tonight, the Bymart Amphitheater at Jackson County Fairgrounds and Exposition Park. Uh, He will be uh, uh, presenting. And in Bend on the 3rd at 7.30 p.m. at Life Amphitheater at Bend at the Christian Center there. And here in the Portland metro area on the 5th, which is Saturday, at the Clackamas County Fairgrounds and Event Center. That begins at 7.30 p.m. Jeremy Camp will be performing as well. Tri-Cities Washington, August the 7th at the Columbia Point Marina Park. All events begin at 7.30 p.m. In Spokane, Washington, at the Spokane County Fair and Expo Center in uh, Tacoma at the Cheney Stadium parking lot uh, on the 12th and at Monroe, Washington on the 13th at Evergreen State Fairgrounds and Speedway. Again, Reverend Franklin Graham, Jeremy Camp uh, touring on behalf of the uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association calling for a a season of prayer for the nation, our communities, and the lost as part of their uh, nationwide Decision America Tour. If you're interested in more details, you can uh, Google Decision America Tour or go to the uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association website for more details. Well, tomorrow on the program, we are going to um, talk with Linda Evans, Praying God's Promises, the life-changing power of praying the scriptures. And uh, what a tremendous uh, gift it is to have God's word so that we are praying back uh, to him things we know are consistent with his uh, His heart and his plan. We're going to talk with Linda Evans about how to do that in an effective way. Again, her book is titled Praying God's Promises, the life-changing power of praying the scriptures. All right. I uh, want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing today's program. And uh, thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. We'll be back here tomorrow. I hope you will join us. And once again, we'll be giving away a family four-pack of tickets to the Oregon State Fair. So listen up for your opportunity in the 5 o'clock hour tomorrow or that. Hey, have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.